All right, if you have your Bible with you this evening, we are in the book of Acts tonight. We are taking a little bit of a, a break uh, from uh, Matthew. And uh, I was out during the week on Thursday evening. I went up to Saintfield to hear Pastor Rogers uh, preaching and uh, enjoyed very much hearing him and renewing fellowship with him. Uh, but while he was preaching, he preached on Acts chapter at 16, he was talking about the Philippian jailer and uh, his conversion. And uh, while we were reading there, uh, you know, I carried on down and my eye was caught, uh, not by anything in chapter 16, but by verse 27 uh, of Acts chapter 17. And so I did something that I rarely do. Uh, I decided to change my message uh, for tonight and just take a slightly different uh, tack or track on things. And uh, so, uh, you know, I, I very rarely would do that so late in the week. And, uh, but I just felt exercised that this was a, a little verse that we should think about tonight. And I trust the Lord will bless us as we look at this verse and this passage. And I want to speak to you tonight about finding Jesus. Finding Jesus. And in Acts chapter 17, uh, the Apostle Paul speaking to uh, the philosophers gathered on Mars Hill at the Areopagus in Athens said that they should seek the Lord. If haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. They should seek the Lord if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. And we trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. Several years ago, I sat under a pastor who was giving his testimony And in that testimony, uh, he was sharing how he had gone to university in England and there he had studied and earned a degree in philosophy. And he said upon reflection that he now looked upon it as a degree in stupidity. And it always kind of made me smile because I've read some of the things that philosophers write and uh, I'm not by any stretch of the imagination a philosopher or a studier, studier, a student of philosophy, uh, but uh, I've read a few of the things that they've written, and I have to agree that sometimes you read those things and you wonder, you know, were these people, where were they at? You know, what was going through their heads when they said some of the things that they said? Well, in Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul comes into the city of Athens. He comes in alone into that city, and uh, it was a very unusual city, even by ancient standards, because the city of Athens was absolutely cram-packed with idols. They said on every available space there was an idol erected, so much so that they said of ancient Athens that it had more idols than it had actual men. But overshadowing this city uh, was uh, the Areopagus, uh, a great big structure where the city's governing council met. And among those who would have gathered on this hill that overshadowed the city of Athens were the philosophers of ancient Greece. And no doubt they discussed the various philosophies that had indeed exercised their minds for some centuries, the writings of Pythagoras and Socrates and Aristotle and Plato. But they were always looking for some new thing. That was the thing about the Athenian philosophers. They were never content uh, with the philosophies they had received. They were always looking for some new insight, some uh, new development in man's thinking that they could debate and discuss 
among themselves. And that tells you something right there about man's thinking and man's wisdom. It tells you that man's wisdom never, never satisfies. No matter how deep it is, you know, no matter how intelligent a person may be who pronounces these various philosophies or indeed studies these philosophies, they never satisfy the soul. And so these men were always looking for something novel, some other theory, some other philosophy, some other school of thought just that they could just travel along. Not only that, not only is man's wisdom one that never satisfies But for all of man's wisdom, men are still left in the dark. And so in the midst of this sight, if you notice in verse 23 of that chapter, uh, these people had erected a column, an obelisk, uh, to the unknown God. So there was a great big uh, granite needle that sat pointing up to the sky. And they knew that there was some being beyond the blue that uh, was greater than anything that they could have encountered or imagined in their own finite minds. And they recognized that this one needed some form of worship. And so they erected this column to the unknown God. And the word unknown there is an interesting Greek word. You'll have heard it in one form or another. And it's the word agnostos, which gives us the word agnostic. And today, many people, if they don't claim to be atheistic, claim to be agnostic. And an agnostic says that he doesn't know whether God exists or not. He will neither say that God does exist nor deny that God exists, uh, but he will, he will stand in the middle, he'll sit on the fence, and uh, he will say that simply cannot be known. In other words, these are people who on the one hand are too shy to deny God for fear that he might actually exist, But on the other hand, they are too reluctant to serve him because that would mean a change of course and a change of life for them. And so they think that by taking a middle ground between atheism, a denial of God, and theism, a belief in God, and going down this route of agnosticism, they can somehow come out all right in the end. If there is no God, well, they haven't lost anything. And if there is a God, they will appeal to ignorance and say, well, we simply didn't know. If we had known there was a God, we certainly would have worshipped him. Well, I'm afraid it doesn't quite work that way because the Bible says that the invisible things of God can be seen from his creation and that all men are answerable to God, having God's law written upon their heart and that every man has a conscience before God and he has a sense of the divine surrounding him. So whether agnostics say they don't know there's a God or not, the fact of the matter is that even though they would claim agnosticism, they live as atheists. And uh, what you do, friends, speaks far louder than anything you can ever say. And that's true even as a Christian. You know, we can say we're Christians, but what we do speaks far louder than our profession. And so we have to back up what we say with our own actions. Well, these philosophers were agnostics. On the one hand, they esteemed the opinions of intelligent men. But on the other, they sought to worship a great God who was hidden to them, that they felt could not be known. They called him the unknown God. And so when the Apostle Paul arrives in the city of Athens, he is taken aback by the sight of all of these idols that are surrounding him. The Bible says there in verse 16, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Uh, He was really shaken 
by what he saw. And I understand the Apostle Paul was not a man who lived his life in a bubble. This was a man who was traveling through various pagan societies. It wasn't his first encounter with idolatry. It wasn't the first time he'd seen people worshipping objects of stone or wood or metal. Not at all. He had seen this many times. And it wasn't the practice of idolatry that shocked him in this city, but the extent of the idolatry that met him in that place. And so he found out where the center of religion was, where the center of religious thought might be. And it turned out to be up at the Areopagus, at the governing uh, council, where the philosophers of ancient Greece sat and debated one with another. And so Paul went into their midst, taking note of this great monument, that had been erected and now look in verse 22 and see what happens then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and he said you men of Athens I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious for as I passed by and beheld your devotions I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God whom therefore ye ignorantly worship him Declare I unto you, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is the Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is he worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, We ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. In the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. So Paul comes into this city. He sees this great column that is now dedicated to the unknown God. And effectively he says to these people, listen, God can be known. You can know him. You can be acquainted with him. You can be intimate with him. You can understand something of him and have a relationship to him. That's what Paul wanted them to know. That God is not some elusive being who is hidden away in the heavens. That he's not shy, that he's not distant, that he's not aloof from the affairs of men and what is going on in our lives. That the Lord may be known and that you and I and all men can know him in a very real and personal way. Now you might say, well, pastor, that's fine. But how can I know him? Where can I find God? Well, I want to help you do just that this evening. If that's the question that's on your heart and on your lips. And I want to read again that 27th verse of verse 17, our key text for this evening, 
where Paul advises these men gathered on Mars Hill that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. Well, let me begin by saying this. To find the Lord, you must first seek the Lord. To find the Lord, you must seek the Lord. That was Paul's counsel, that they should seek the Lord. And that stands to reason. You cannot find anything unless you first search for it. And you will not find the Lord until such a time as you determine in your heart and set upon it to seek after him. Now, all through Scripture, we find that men are urged and commanded to seek the Lord. In the, the book of Deuteronomy, Moses wrote, But if from thence thou shalt seek the Lord thy God, thou shalt find him, if thou seek him with all thy heart and with all thy soul. You see, this is a matter of such importance that it calls upon the entire person to seek after God. It's not a cursory glance. It's not just a, a careless look. Uh, but rather it is a, a very diligent and committed uh, effort to find God. He says you'll find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. The psalmist said, When thou sayest, Seek ye my face, my heart said unto thee, Thy face, Lord, will I seek. You know, someday you're going to see the face of the Lord Jesus. You're going to look him in the eye. And he is going to be your judge and my judge. But understand, even before that day, God is calling upon us here and now to seek his face, to seek his presence. And he commands us to do such. And the psalmist says, Lord, if you said it, my heart says unto thee, thy face, Lord, will I see. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus in Luke chapter 11 when he said this, For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh, it shall be opened. And he encouraged us to do those three things, to ask and to seek and to knock. And that's what you need to do if you're going to find the Lord. You need to ask him. You need to seek after him. You need to knock on his door, as it were. And you need to ask the Lord into your heart and into your life. Now, all through Scripture, we find men who did just that. And they found the Lord. You know, in the book of Ezra, chapter 8, you have the story of the returning exiles who come from captivity in Persia back into the land of Israel and to the city of Jerusalem where they begin the work of rebuilding the temple of God that had been destroyed by the Babylonians and King Nebuchadnezzar. And in that moment, as they're making that journey, Ezra tells the story and he says, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the beginning of their journey at the river of Ahava, and that we might afflict ourselves before our God. Now listen to what he says, to seek of him a right way for us and for our little ones and for all our substance. Look what he was looking for. He sought the Lord for a right way for us. You see, that's what the philosophers of ancient Greece were trying to do. They were trying to discover a right way for man. Should he follow the theories of Aristotle? Should he follow the writings of Plato? Should he give an ear to Pythagoras? And here the word of God tells us, forget all of that. Seek after God. He has the right way for us, but not just for us. And this is the important thing. It says for us, 
and for our little ones. I think this is so important because many times people make a decision concerning salvation based upon their own personal interest. They're concerned for their own soul. And they ought to be if you're not a Christian. You should be concerned for your own soul. But I want you to understand this decision to accept or reject Christ has implications not only for your own life, but the lives of those perhaps who are following behind you. The lives of your children and of your grandchildren. You know, Hazel and I were sharing today with someone how we were the first in our family to be saved. Both of us were the first in our families to be saved. We were living with our parents at that time. And subsequent to our salvation, then our, uh, our Hazel's mother and my father uh, gave their hearts to the Lord. Uh, Hazel's sister gave her heart to the Lord. My brother gave his heart to the Lord. And uh, you look now at, their, at our families and their families, and you find what? You find now that our children uh, gave their hearts to the Lord. My brother's children gave their hearts to the Lord. Our grandchildren are giving their hearts to the Lord. Some of them have been saved. And yet that all came about because one person, Uh, took a decision. One of us, uh, each of us individually, took a decision to trust the Lord Jesus as our Savior. You see, God pointed us in a way that was right, not just for us, but it was right also for our children and for our grandchildren. And this is so important. You see, it's one thing if you lose your own soul. It's one thing if you die in your sin and go out into a lost eternity. But what about your children? And what about your grandchildren? And what about your great-grandchildren? Could it not be that by trusting Christ and seeking the Lord that you set a right way for them and that others will follow in your wake and will be born again and will be saved eternal hell as a consequence of a decision that you took many years before. David said this, I sought the Lord, and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. You know, there's a lot of people who live in fear today. I wonder, are you one of those people? You know, I don't live in fear today. Really, I, you know, there's, obviously there are things that I don't particularly care for. I don't particularly care for heights. Uh, I don't, you know, there's, if you get me up in high, too high, I get a little bit dizzy. I went up the uh, Empire State Building with Hazel. She stood right on the edge there overlooking the wall. And I stood right by the, across the way, standing by the building itself, just in case there should be a gust of wind and we should disappear. You know, I don't like heights. I'm afraid of heights, but I'm not, I'll tell you what I'm not afraid of. I'm not afraid of what eternity holds. I'm not afraid of, I might, you know, I might fear dying by falling from a great height, but I don't fear death. Death holds no fear for me. I remember a young woman threatening me many years ago, and she told me that there was a young man down the street, and if she were to tell him what I was preaching and what I was saying to her with respect to the gospel, he would have a gun on him, and he would come and shoot me. And I said to her, are you threatening me with heaven? There's nothing to fear in heaven. You see, that's what the psalmist said. I sought the Lord. He heard me, and he delivered me from all my fears. Again, the psalmist says, with my whole heart, have I sought thee? You see, David was seeking the Lord. You should be seeking the Lord. There, were, uh, uh, there was a body of Greek men who came in the Gospels to find Jesus. And here's their words. Sirs, we would see Jesus. They come to the disciples. They said, sirs, we would see Jesus. We've come looking for the Savior. We've come looking for the Lord Jesus. And maybe you're here tonight or maybe you're watching online and you're seeking Jesus. Well, let me tell you, you've come to the right place in that respect because tonight I'm going to trust that you're going to find Jesus. We're going to help you find the Lord Jesus tonight. You say, well, pastor, where am I? to find the Lord well I'll tell you where you'll not find him you'll not find him in dead religion 
That's what I find in the word of God. You'll not find them in, in dead religion. You know, in the Old Testament times, dead religion was seen in the pagan beliefs of the, uh, of the Gentiles and the idolatrous ways of the Jews. In the New Testament, dead religion was found in the legalistic practices of the Pharisees. You know, in the Old Testament, you, uh, if you read through Old Testament history, you encounter a man by the name of Jeroboam. He becomes a king. He's a usurper to the throne of Israel. He becomes King Jeroboam I, and he divided the kingdom of Israel, and he sets up his own religion. It had many similarities to ancient Judaism and biblical Judaism, but it wasn't altogether the same, because at the heart of Jeroboam's religion was idols that he had set up. And when he established his base in northern Israel, in the area of Dan, we read that some of the Jews in the north of the land, and listen to what Second Chronicles 11 says, set their hearts to seek the Lord God of Israel and came to Jerusalem to sacrifice unto the Lord God of their fathers. Listen, friends, if your religion hasn't led you to the feet of Jesus, if it hasn't brought you to the cross, if it hasn't pointed you to heaven, it's not a religion worth holding on to. You see, there are people who will hold on to an old family religion. They'll say, well, my father was this and my grandfather was that and my great-grandfather before him and I was born in that and I will die in that. No, what a, what a folly that is. What a folly that is. You know, when I pastored in the Republic of Ireland, we did a lot of door-to-door work and we would often meet Roman Catholic friends who would say things like that in the doors and they would, uh, you know, you would say to them, you know, well, why, why are you Roman Catholic? You know, they come out and they say, well, I'm Catholic. Well, that was sort of like stating the obvious. We were living in a country that was 96% Roman Catholic at that time. So it was pretty obvious we were going to run the Catholics. So they'd say, I'm Catholic. As though somehow or other we shouldn't pursue this discussion with them any further. We would often ask them this question, well, why are you Catholic? And that was a question that they hadn't really thought about. Because they had just been born into Catholicism, raised in Catholicism, educated in Catholicism, married in Catholicism, brought their children up in Catholicism. Their father was a Catholic, their grandfather was a Catholic, their great-grandfather. Going back many generations, Catholicism was in the family. The reason they were Roman Catholics was because they were born into Roman Catholicism. But they had never of themselves chosen that particular faith for themselves. And when we would challenge them on this point, we'd often make the point, well, listen, I know why I'm a Christian. I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. I know why I was converted. I know why I, why I do what I do and, and why I worship as I worship and why I go to the church that I go to. I know these things because I made a conscious decision sometime back in my life to trust the Lord Jesus as my Savior and to follow him. Well, hey, if your religion is not leading you to the cross, it's a useless religion. What Whatever stripe you put on it. It's not a religion worth holding on to. I like the story of the sailors who were out in the high seas in the Royal Navy and they, they went to see the, uh, the Navy chaplain. They asked him a very simple question. They said, sir, do you think there's a place called hell? And the chaplain said, no boys, hell is a myth. No such place exists. 
And their response to that was this, and it was a very sensible and logical response. They said, well, if there is no hell, we have no need of you. But if there is a hell, we still have no need of you. You see the logic? You see, if there was no hell, what use was he? He was of no concern to them. You know, he was living his life one way and they were living their lives another way. If, on the other hand, there is a hell and he was denying it and saying it's just a myth and preventing them from recognizing the need and the way of salvation, then clearly they had no need of him either way. You see, a ministry that never broaches sin, that never speaks about hell, that never talks about heaven, that never talks about salvation through Christ alone, is a, is a ministry and a religion that's not worth having. You know, in the New Testament, Jesus reserved some of his most scathing words for religious people, for the Pharisees. Look with Matthew chapter 23 for a moment. Matthew chapter 23, you see, theirs was a religion of legalism, not of idolatry like Jeroboam, not of ceremony, uh, so much like the Old Testament uh, saints, by the Old Testament Jews, but it was, a, it was a religion of legalism. It was, do this to be saved. Don't do that to be saved. Uh, or you'll be lost. If you do that, you'll, you'll be lost. If you do this, you'll be lost. And there are religions like that today. You know, there are some churches and religions and, uh, and uh, religious bodies, and they'll say, well, if you're going to get to heaven, you're going to have to go to church, and you're going to have to be uh, christened, or you're going to have to be baptized, and you're going to have to keep the commandments of God, and you're going to have to be a good person. You know, there's none good, no, not one. That's what the book of Romans says in chapter 3. But if you were to speak to a Mormon today, he would tell you that in order to get to heaven, you would have to uh, be baptized into Mormonism, and you'd have to keep the commandments of God, and you'd have to live a clean life, and so on. And he wouldn't be alone in telling you that. There are multiple religions that teach such a thing. Be a good neighbor, be a good citizen, be a good father, be a good son, uh, or whatever. Uh, don't smoke, and don't drink, and don't gamble, and, uh, and don't uh, swear, and don't be immoral. And those things are very commendable. There's no, there's no problem with any of those things. But they don't make a person fit for heaven. You see, hell is full of people who never smoked and never drank and never gambled and never swore and weren't necessarily immoral in comparison to others. You know, hell is full of people who were good mothers and good fathers and good sons and good daughters and good neighbors and good citizens. Those things, whilst they may have their merit on earth, gather no merit with God. God is not interested in our goodness. He's interested in his grace. He's not interested in what we've done. He's interested in what his son has done on the cross of Calvary. Look now at the words of the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 23. In Matthew chapter 23 and verse 13. He's speaking to these, these Pharisees. These the most, the most uh, scrupulous of religious devotees. Uh, these who are the most meticulous of all of the Jewish followers of his day. And he says this to them, but woe unto you scribes and Pharisees. Scribes were the lawyers, the men who went through the fine print of the Old Testament law and who developed other laws so as not to contradict them. And he says, but woe unto you scribes, you lawyers and Pharisees, hypocrites. What's a hypocrite? A hypocrite's an actor. Hypocrites. Is the Greek word, and, and, and it refers to someone who wears a mask. 
Someone who was on the old ancient Greek theatres would come out with a, a, a tragic or a comic mask on his face, you know, either with a big smile or a big frown, and he would play a role. And the Lord Jesus says to these Pharisees, listen, you guys are playing a role. You're putting on a front. You're making it look like you're righteous and, and that you're spiritual. He says, but I see through all of that. Notice what he says of them. For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For ye neither go in yourselves. He says, you're not going into heaven. Neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For ye devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayer. What? Look at his words. Therefore you shall receive the greatest damnation. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you compass sea and land to make one proselyte, one convert. And when he is made, what happens to him? You make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. Look at verse 33. He says to them, ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? That's what the Lord Jesus said to the most religious people of his day. You see, biblical Christianity, friends, is not a list of do's and don'ts. It's not a a religion of legalism. It's not about what you do or what I do or what we don't do. It's about what Jesus did when he laid down his life for us on the cross of Calvary, when he gave his life a ransom for our souls, when he made atonement for our sin, he covered our sin, he paid our sin debt before God the Father, and he sealed our salvation in his own blood. You can never outdo that, no matter what you do. Listen, you're not going to find the Lord if you're seeking him in dead religion. You'll not find him in spiritual experience either. You're not going to find him in transcendental meditation or in yoga or in some other eastern form of religious practice. Listen, you can sit and squat all day long in the lotus or whatever other position you care to name and you can hold your hands up and hum till the cows come home. It's not going to get you into heaven. might get your legs in a knot, but that's about it. It's not going to do anything for your soul. It's not going to be of any help to you when you stand before the Lord. And you know what? You'll not find him in modern day tongue speaking or ecstatic experiences. You see, there's people today who think that they're saved because they speak in tongues. Let me tell you something. Buddhists speak in tongues. Mormons speak in tongues. Roman Catholics speak in tongues. It's no sign of salvation. There's no proof that you belong to the Lord. You might have an ecstatic experience. Your heart might be lifted high into the rafters. You might come out floating on a cloud from some meeting or some gathering somewhere and assume because you've had an emotional uh, experience that you've, that you've been lifted in your soul in some way that you belong to the Lord. Listen, you're not going to find the Lord just in spiritual experience. You're not going to find him with incense Or with holy oils. Hughes and I went to a a Catholic funeral many years ago. We went out of respect to to one of the ladies in our church. Her mother had passed away. And we went along to this 
a Roman Catholic funeral in Wicklow. I'd never been in a Roman Catholic funeral before. Hazel hadn't either. I didn't, actually, I don't think I'd even been in a Roman Catholic service before that moment. And so uh, we sat in this church not quite knowing what was going to happen. And uh, the casket was at the front of the church, as you might expect. The coffin was there, and, uh, and uh, you know, the, the priests were all around the place. And, and at one point, the, the priest comes in, and he comes in behind us, and he's waving his incense. Now, this was new to me. I had never smelled incense in a church before. And uh, you know what? You can spot the Baptist pastor in a Catholic church. I started saying to Hazel, something's burning. <laughs> and, I, and I said, do you smell that? Something's burning. And she goes, yeah, yeah. And I said, do you think I should shout fire? And she's going, and you could tell she was nervous because I was on the brink of shouting, fire, fire, everybody out. <laughs> Which would have been a disaster, wouldn't it? But my goodness, listen, you can swing that smoke all day long. You can come up there with their holy oil or, or as people have been doing this week with ashes and, and making marks on your forehead. The very thing the Lord told you not to do when you were fasting is the same thing that men are doing in this so-called period of Lent. Coming up and putting a mark on your head to let everybody know that you're fasting. The very opposite of what the Lord says you ought to do. Men are doing. Listen, no amount of incense, no amount of ashes, no amount of holy oil is going to prepare you for eternity. You'll not find the Lord by humming mantras or uh, or, or heeding the, the uh, lyrics of religious pop songs that pass for modern worship. You're not going to find him either in complex philosophical or theological arguments. You say, well, well, surely the brightest minds must know something about God. Did you ever watch some of those philosophers talk about God? When I was a young Christian. They used to have this show on, uh, this program on Ulster Television. Some of you might remember it. It was late at night, almost the last program before they shut down and it was called witness and they used to have some old dead cleric would come on or old dead philosopher come on last thing at night boy say if anybody was going to put you to sleep he'd have put you to sleep and he'd come on there and he'd, and he'd just go hmm God is there a God maybe there is maybe there isn't good night and you'd be like what was that about? And now you all watch shows like that. I stopped calling it witness. They started calling it witless. They were witless. They had no clue. But if you went and spoke to the, the uh, program makers at UTV and said, why do you have these fellas on? They don't know what they're talking about. They'd have said, oh, these are the thinkers of the day. These are the philosophers. These are the theologians. These are the bright minds of Queen's University or, or some other uh, educational establishment. These are men who can discuss the intricacies of theological and philosophical theory. Uh, but all that may well be true. But here's the thing. Listening to those people, you get nowhere with God. Because God says in his word, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, saith the Lord. You see, man doesn't have a single thought of his own that draws him one centimeter closer to heaven. And there are men who sit around like the philosophers of ancient Greece discussing and debating complex theories and not finding God. To the unknown God. That was the inscription 
on their monument. And there are men who sit around today, navel-gazing the things of God, dwelling upon things that they don't understand, so that the word of God says of them that they're ever learning, but they never come to the knowledge of the truth. You see, you could do that. You can learn and you can build up your information and knowledge even of the Bible. You can treat the Bible as a textbook. You can know what it says in terms of its contents. But knowing what it says is not the same as knowing the one who said it. You say, well, where am I to find the Lord then if I can't find him in dead religion? If I can't find him in spiritual and mystical experience, if I can't find him in theological and philosophical argument, where am I to find the Lord? Well, I'll tell you where you'll find the Lord. You'll find him in the one place and the only place that anyone can find him, the place where Jesus pointed us to when he said this, search the scriptures, for they are they which testify of me. You see what the Lord Jesus said? He said, stop trusting the minds of men. Stop trusting the writings of men. Stop trusting the philosophies and the theologies of men. Men complicate things. Have you ever noticed that? You know, if you don't believe men complicate things, you ought to go to Bible school. You get to Bible school and they teach you all kinds of big words that you, know, you don't ever use again, or at least you ought not to use again unless you're trying to be a blueheart in the pulpit. And they'll come and say to you, oh, we're going to learn about pneumatology. Pneumatology. Sounds like I'm going to do some kind of surgery. Pneumatology is just a study of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. They don't say we're going to learn about the Holy Spirit. Oh, we're going to teach you about pneumatology. Oh, we're going to teach you about the eschatological significance of the book of Daniel. Oh, what's that mean? We're teaching you about the end times. That's what it means. But you know, theologians and, and seminarians, they love to use these big words and complicate things. That's human nature. We try to make things sound far more difficult than they really are. Friends, it's simple to be saved. Do you want to be saved? Here's what you do. You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. It's as simple as that. You don't need to go to seminary for it. You don't need to sweat it out over some academic textbook for it. You don't need to listen to some philosopher or or try some kind of religious ceremony for it. You simply submit to the word of God. Here's what Isaiah the prophet said. He said, seek ye out the book of the Lord and read. And the word seek there means to read something repeatedly and, and study it. You want to find Jesus? Here's where you'll find him. You'll find him in this book. You'll find him on every page. If you'll take the time to heed it and to learn of him. Paul said this, Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing how? By the word of God. And he reminded his young apprentice Timothy that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures which are able to make thee, listen to what he says, wise unto salvation 
through faith that is in Christ Jesus. Paul says that this young man had understood the gospel as a little boy. That he sat upon his mother and his grandmother's knee. And he listened to them. Speaking to them. uh, Speaking to him about the things of God. And he grasped the simplicity of salvation. And he believed. And Paul is exhorting him now as an adult. Reminding him that from a child. From a child. From infancy. He has known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation. You want to find Jesus? You want to know how to be saved? Listen to me. The words of life are written in this book, the book of books. The Bible has the answer. Look for the Lord in Scripture. You say, well, when should I seek the Lord? Well, there's no time like the present. You mustn't put this thing off or it's too important a matter for that. You know, if you were to go home this evening and there was a leak coming through your ceiling, you wouldn't say, well, I'll deal with that in the morning. You'd deal with it right there and then. Otherwise, you get up in the morning and you'll have no ceiling. The ceiling will collapse on the floor beneath. There's some things that are so important you have to deal with them there and then, however inconvenient it may be. And certainly nothing is more pressing and nothing is more imperative than seeking after the Lord. You know, you you mustn't mustn't, uh, uh, procrastinate on this. You mustn't uh, put it off until tomorrow. And you certainly ought not to wait until your deathbed. What a time to try and find the Lord on your deathbed. What a folly that is. First of all, you may never lie on such a bed. Many people are swept into eternity in a moment without having the opportunity to have a deathbed. And other people, when they get to their deathbed, find that they're so sin-hardened that no amount of proclamation of the gospel will touch the inner man and they continue into eternity as they've always been and cannot find the Lord. No, the Bible says it is time to seek the Lord. That's what Hosea said in Hosea 10, 12. Now is the accepted time, Paul said. Now is the day of salvation. You can't put this thing off one moment longer. Listen, you must seek the Lord. And in seeking the Lord, you must feel after him. Look what this verse says in Acts 17, 27. That they should seek the Lord, if happily they might feel after him and find him. The idea is of a man groping in the dark, trying to find his way, that he might feel after him and find him. Now, for some people, some of the time... And we've all been there. It feels like God is a hidden entity that we cannot find him. Look in Job chapter 23. Job chapter 23. Because Job touches on this very thought and his experience in Job chapter 23. Verse 8. He says, Behold, I go forward, speaking of God, but he is not there. And backward... But I cannot perceive him. On the left hand where he doth work. But I cannot behold him. He hideth himself on the right hand. That I cannot see him. You see what he says? He says it feels like he's not there. I have no perception of him. I can't see him. I can't touch him. He seems to be beyond me. 
This is the human, human experience, the human perspective. But mark my words, the Lord is near. Why then can't you sense him? Why can't you find him? Well, you, you, it's, you're like a short-sighted person who wakes up in the night. You see, if you're not a Christian, you're, you're like that person who has, uh, has short-sightedness, you know, wakes up in the night looking for their glasses. You ever do that if you're a short-sighted person? You get up in the middle of the night and you decide you want to go downstairs for a drink of water, but you prefer not to fall down the stairs. So you try to find your glasses. And you knock everything off the bedside table. Have you ever done that? You put your hand out. Everything goes. The lamp goes. The phone goes. You know, the book goes. Everything goes. You make a terrible clatter. And usually at this point, your glasses go. (laughs) They're on the floor. You feel around and there's nothing there. And then what? You're on all fours trying to feel your glasses so as not to disturb your husband or disturb your wife, by which time you've disturbed them greatly. That's what this idea is of feeling after the Lord. It's a picture of someone groping in the dark. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy chapter 28. You see, there are people who go through their lives, bless them, and they're groping in the dark. They don't know where they're going. They don't know where they've been. They don't know where to turn. And they're really in trouble before God. And Deuteronomy 28 and verse 28 speaks of such a, such a circumstance. And it says this, The Lord shall smite thee with madness and blindness and astonishment of heart. Verse 29, Thou shalt grope at noonday as the blind grope within darkness. Thou shalt not prosper in thy ways. Thou shalt be only oppressed and spoiled evermore. And no man shall save you. You see, the Bible says of the unsaved man, that his heart and his mind is completely darkened. Why is it darkened? How did he get into the state? Well, first of all, the Bible says in Romans chapter 12, or Romans chapter 1 and verse 21, that his mind is darkened owing to the rejection of God's word. It says this because that when they knew God, they understood there was a God. They realized that there is a being much greater than themselves. They glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful for his daily provision and blessings, but became vain in their imagination. And listen to what it says. And their foolish heart was darkened. That's where you are tonight if you're a lost person. Your heart has been darkened by your rejection of God's word. Matthew chapter 6, the Lord Jesus speaks about the heart being darkened owing to the love of sin. Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 22 and 23, he says this. If you listen here, he says, The light of the body is the eye. And that's true. Light goes through the eye, through the pupil. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, if your heart is set on sin, the whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness. There are people who are darkened tonight because they've rejected the word of God. There's people tonight who are in darkness because they've given themselves to sin. There are people tonight who are in darkness because they're following some false religion. Even as we talked about earlier, Matthew 15 and verse 14, the Lord Jesus touches on this. Let them alone, he says. They be blind leaders of the blind. Listen to how he describes the Pharisees. He says they're blind and the people who are following them are blind. Some people are darkened, and the all unsaved people are darkened through spiritual and satanic delusion. Look in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 for a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 
Second Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 3. Where Paul says this. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. In whom the God of this world, that's Satan. Notice it's God with a small g, not a God with a capital G. In whom the God of this world, the satanic power, hath blinded the minds of them which believe not. If they're blinded, they're in darkness. Why has he done this? Lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. You see, here's the thing that the devil has done. He's pulled the curtains of the mind over. You know, I I have witnessed to people who are far, far brighter than I am, who are far, far uh, better educated than I am. Uh, people who you know, could, could buy and sell me all day long with the things that they know and they understand. And I explain to them the simplicity of the gospel. And I tell them how easy it is to be saved. And you know, they look at me like I am sharing the most complex theory they've ever heard. It simply doesn't go through their minds. And it bamboozles me. I've spoke to people who are doctors and architects and lawyers, uh, people who are bright people, people who've got good degrees, people who hold responsible jobs, people that you would trust with a knife in their hand if you were lying on their table in a, in a, in a hospital theater, people you would trust with a pen in their hand if they were signing off a contract on the purchase of your house, people you would trust in every area of life. But when it comes to this one area of life, the devil has closed their minds. And they can't see. Can't see Jesus. But it doesn't have to be that way. Look in verse 6 of our reading there in 2 Corinthians 4. For God who commandeth the light to shine out of darkness hath shined in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of of Jesus Christ. You see, Scripture says, the entrance of thy word giveth light. Listen, you'll be saved. If you want to be saved, you want to find Jesus, you'll find him the moment you yield to this book. The moment you say, I believe it. That's when you're saved. The moment you bow before the Lord Jesus and say, Lord, be merciful to me a sinner. That's who I am. Be kind unto me. When you confess and tell him, Lord, I believe everything you say. Everything you say about me is absolutely true. I am a terrible sinner. Everything you say about eternity is absolutely true. I am a lost man. And I am on my way to a lost eternity. And everything this book that says about the Lord Jesus is absolutely true. That he loves me and gave himself for me and is the most wonderful and gracious and beautiful of saviors who came into this world to save sinners and to save me. I believe. When you believe those things, you're born again. You better believe it. This was Paul's testimony in Acts chapter 26. Remember, Paul was a vicious religious devotee who went around ancient Israel dragging men out of their homes for their faith in Christ and bringing them before the religious courts in the hope that they would be stoned to death. 
and he's on his way to the city of Damascus. He's leaving for that city to find the Jewish community in that place to hunt down, sorry, to find the Christian uh, community in that place to hunt down uh, the Christians who would be living among the Jews, who had trusted Christ as their Messiah. But en route, he meets the Lord Jesus and he tells this story and he tells this testimony before King Agrippa. He says how the Lord appeared unto him and said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest and goes on and explains what happened. Then he says in verse 18, that the Lord has sent him, notice, to open their eyes, the eyes of the Gentiles, the pagans, and to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan unto the power of God, that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. That's what happens when you believe. You're moved by the Spirit of God from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God. It's a wonderful thing. It's a miracle of the Holy Spirit. It's a miracle of the Word of God. And let me say as we close out, when you find him, you'll find he's not far away. Listen to what that verse says again in Acts 27. That they should seek the Lord if happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. Here's the beautiful thing. Listen to me now. He's near. He's not a God who's afar off. He's near. I love the little chorus. I don't know if we sing it here. Reach out and touch the Lord as he goes by. Have you heard that little chorus? Beautiful little chorus. Reach out and touch the Lord as he goes by. You'll find he's not too busy to hear your heart's cry. He's passing by this moment. Your need to supply. Reach out and touch the Lord as he goes by. You know the woman at the well, the woman with the issue of blood rather, did just that. The Lord Jesus came by that day And this poor woman who for 12 years had seen doctors and was no better for it, reached out. And as Gordon shared this morning at the table, she touched the hem of his garment and virtue departed from him. Power came from him. And she was wonderfully healed and gloriously saved. Blind Bartimaeus sitting by the roadside hears the footsteps of Jesus passing by and he cries out, Lord, have mercy on me. Have compassion upon me. You see, he knew that Jesus was near and Jesus gave him his sight, healed him and saved him. And tonight, if you'd reach out to him, though you may feel like you're maybe groping in the dark, if you will call out, even if you feel it, perhaps he may not hear. I promise you he is here. And I promise you he will hear. And he will answer your cry. You see, all along he's been here. Here's the thing. He's been with us right through our lives. He's been a presence right through our lives. All our days, Jesus has been in the background, never far away. You may not have seen him and you may not have sensed him. You may have been like Job and said, well, I went forward and I couldn't perceive him and I went back and I couldn't behold him and I looked to the right and I looked to the left and and he wasn't there as far as I understood it. But understand he was there and he is here. He is here tonight. Right here. Right in this little village of Points Pass and County Armagh. Right in this little church room. The Lord Jesus is here. 
right by your side. You say, well, how do you know that? Because God's word assures me of it. It says, the Lord is nigh or near unto them that are of a broken heart and save us such as be of a contrite spirit. In Psalm 145, it says, the Lord is near unto all them that call upon him, to all that call upon him in truth. And then Isaiah said, seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call you upon him. Listen to what it says. While he is what? Near. He's near. He is here. Hallelujah. He is here. Amen. He is here. Holy, holy. I will praise his name again. He is here. Listen closely. Hear him calling out your name. He is here. You can touch him. And you'll never be the same. May God bless these thoughts to your hearts this evening. Let's rise together as we sing our concluding hymn tonight. In Christ alone, my hope is found.